so, hello none of you, welcome to Sanchiro's Boys, another quarantine podcast because the world doesn't have enough of those. I am your host, Tim Amatuli. And I'm your other host, Chris Gote. The general format for Sanchiro's Boys is going to be that we talk about one Akira Kurosawa movie a week, we're going to give some background detail, and we're going to just have, you know, casual conversations about what we thought about the movie. Chris will be watching it immediately before recording, and I'll watch it a little bit ahead of time to do my research and gather some thoughts. And we're also going to talk about our favorite shots every week. And I'll also be consulting a few books along the way for each of them. I'll be reading The Films of Akira Kurosawa by Donald Ritchie, Kurosawa's autobiography, and A Critical Handbook of Japanese Film Directors by Alexander Jacoby. I will not be reading any of these for this podcast, but I have made one commitment. Akira Kurosawa is very often inspired by literature. He's a great fan of literature, so I have agreed to read The Idiot, by Dostoevsky, uh, in preparation for his film, The Idiot, which is an adaptation of the story. And this is an awful commitment that I shouldn't have made that I regret already, and I haven't started, but I regret alas, it I will do you. it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will do it. <laughs> Look, I, everything I do, I'm, I'm doing this for you. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited to read it. I'm excited to see all those films. Yeah, so we're two guys who uh, like movies, um, and this is an idea that my, my friend Tim here had. He's a, a big Akira Kurosawa guy. I will take the non-controversial stance, the non-debatable stance that Akira Kurosawa is the greatest director to ever live. I've seen about two-thirds of his filmography, and I'm excited to finish the rest. Any one of his, like, really good movies, like, if any director just made one of them, they would be considered an amazing director. And he made all of them. (laughs) Yeah, he made... uh, How many movies exactly has he made? He has made... Well, this is where we, the numbering gets a little interesting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's made 30 feature films, mm-hmm. but there are also a few other films that are going to be kind of thrown into the mix here. He has a made-for-TV documentary, and Ooh. later in this episode, we're also going to talk about the movie that he made before his debut feature, Sanshiro Sugata, Uma, or Horse, or Horses, depending on the translation, which he did not direct... Except he did. <laughs> yeah. He didn't direct in name only. Yeah. He, he... directed <laughs> for all intents and purposes. <laughs> and what's your experience with Kurosawa? So uh, much like probably the average listener of this podcast, I have only seen Rashomon. <laughs> uh, I saw that once, maybe like a few months ago. I was like, oh, that was interesting. I don't really know what was going on. I have like heard of Akira Kurosawa, of course. He's like one of the most famous directors, but I've always wanted to get into him, but I, uh, I haven't really. Which is kind of the idea of this podcast. Yeah, so we're going to be offering you two totally different perspectives on all of Kurosawa's work. For me, most of these movies will be rewatches, and for you, except for Rashomon, all of these movies will be first-timers. Yeah, absolutely. And what is your background with Japanese cinema? before getting specifically into him uh well in general i'm like i would consider myself like a movie guy i've seen like a good number of movies your average like movie guy but in terms of japanese cinema i really haven't seen much like i've seen rashomon i've seen tokyo story i'm gonna watch ugetsu soon uh and i've seen like a few more recent japanese films and i've watched you know some anime but that's really it so i'm (laughs) not that's that's the main exposure very casually familiar and quite the opposite over here. I am very familiar, and it's pretty much all I watch. I used to live in Japan when I was younger, and that had a profound influence on my entire life and all my interests, even though I cannot speak the language because 
I am terrible at speaking, which is why I host a podcast. Yeah, Tim is uh, not your average like guy who's super into <laughs> Japanese films. He actually lived there, and he like has an Asian studies major and a cinema yeah, major I, in college. Yeah, I graduated He's, with yeah. a double major in Asian studies and film. And I cannot speak Japanese, and with coronavirus, I can't go outside. So not a whole lot else going on. For me, Kurosawa is a big influence on the way that I make movies myself, the way I think about how movies are made, and I really love him mainly because I think that he mixes art and entertainment better than, I think, any other director. Among the many things I love, particularly, is his uh, cinematography and blocking, which I won't deny was introduced to me through Every Frame of Painting on YouTube. Cool. Uh, No doubt the major influence Although I had seen, I think, two Akira Kurosawa movies before that, because I was introduced to him with Throne of Blood in my theater class. It's his Macbeth adaptation. And also I'd seen Kagemusha, The Shadow Warrior, which was on Netflix. The only time I've ever seen an Akira Kurosawa movie come on Netflix, and it was back in, like, 2014. Uh, I'm, I'm super excited to, in honor of this project, watch so many three-hour movies. <laughs> and never watch Stalker, the three-hour movie that we really want to watch and we will never get to. We'll see if by the end of this project I've seen Stalker. <laughs> Probably not. Keep your eyes out. Probably not. But yeah, so his movies just, they look great. The screenplays, he's a great writer. They're very, very tight. And even though his films, I agree, tend to skew kind of long. It's forgivable. They are very efficient and have a lot going on in them. He doesn't, on the most part, make boring movies. He makes exciting films. No, no. Although, I don't think we're going to like every single movie. And there is definitely obviously movies that he has that are better and worse than others. And once we hit his golden age, you know, it's going to be a nonstop string of hits for the most part with some very interesting misses. Very exciting. And yeah, it'll be really interesting to see his style evolve. What I love is the way that he uses weather, like his use of rain or his uh, background, wind. We're going to see a lot of that. He just has a love for the earth and the elements and he uses them to really bring out his character's feelings externally, which I love, along with all of his camera movement and the shapes that he creates with his blocking. He's also a very, you know, just humanist director. A lot of his movies share a surprisingly positive outlook on humanity, which uh, I don't share, but I like seeing someone else who does. We're living in a different world than a character of <laughs> world. Maybe he'll, no, he'll take a, us a back to a more one. optimistic time in human history. Yeah, and, you know, when it comes to... I was reading up on, like, what he says about his style, and he really hates to generalize. Yeah. He doesn't really, like, think that he has one, even though he does. Yeah, I mean, no artist wants to be pigeonholed. He just kind of makes these movies, like... He's just like, this is the right way to do it. And a lot of his movies we're going to see come very full circle. They tend to start and end the same way, like, a lot of them, which is another, like, kind of thing to look out for, because we'll even see it in this first movie. And so, what better way to establish the format of our show than by immediately deviating from it for our introductory episode? Yeah, of course. With our discussion of Uma. Uma. Which is credited to Kajiro Yamamoto. Kajiro Yamamoto is cited as one of Akira Kurosawa's main film mentors. Kurosawa worked for him in various assistant director roles on a lot of movies, along with another one of my favorite directors from Japan, Mikio Naruse. Kurosawa spent years working as an assistant director before graduating up to directing his own movies. But the case with Uma is interesting because Akira Kurosawa co-wrote, co-directed, quote-unquote, and edited the entire movie. And by co-directed, it really means that he directed almost all of it. And Yamamoto 
would kind of just come to the tech scouts and like look at the locations and say, all right, do it and then leave and go back to Tokyo. Kurosawa cites it as like a nice kind of dress rehearsal for himself of like learning how to deal with the crew and deal with actors. And so he's made a very steady climb up and given all the input on the movie that he has, I think it's a good place to at least analyze where he was before getting the reins officially. It's like a dress rehearsal where he ends up doing the entire thing. <laughs> yeah, he, he's the understudy that got subbed in on Broadway. Yeah, on opening night. <laughs> on opening night, and now everyone knows him for it. Uh, except yeah. no one no one knows or really cares about this movie, because it is not very easy to find. Yeah, this is hard. We should talk a little bit about this. Uh, you found <laughs> it on YouTube on a channel called Classic Films, <laughs> and you did not find it critically with subtitles. Well, nor did I find it in good quality. You, I would hardly say you found it in any quality. It's like, this film was barely there. We watched Uma in a crisp 360p. Yeah, and even that's a stretch. Uh, with no English subtitles. No English subtitles exist. I couldn't even find them online to, like, Frankenstein my own version of the movie together to watch it. So we, we really can't dedicate a full episode to it because it's, like, not technically really Kurosawa, except it totally is. And it's just not it's just not accessible in the way that literally all of his other movies are. Yeah, it's like, you can hardly even call it a viewing experience. Like, you can barely see what's going on on the screen. There's a lot of just horribly preserved shots. <laughs> There's static running throughout the entire background. But regardless, we watched it, because that's what we're here to do for you. <laughs> and for, for you, we'll all, all two of you. Yeah, us. And, you know, also, considering the fact that it's co-written, you know, that means the other half has a very different sense to it, because... Uh, Yamamoto, as a director, was much more uh, pro-military and imperialist, and this movie... Kurosawa would start his career doing propaganda movies for the Japanese government. Make of that what you will. I don't really know what choice he had. I and mean, I don't think that he goes too far with it, although I haven't seen all of his early works. But I do know that Yamamoto is more of an imperialist director, and he made a lot more of those types of movies. So... Because nobody has seen this movie, and because we couldn't really follow it that well, because we A, couldn't see it, and B, couldn't hear it, uh, we'll read the plot synopsis. Yeah, I think that's fine for this one. We, uh, we needed it to really even have any clue what was going on, and even then, there was a lot that just didn't really make sense. And to notice up front, a spoiler warning is in full effect for Sancho's boys. A young girl named Ine Onada from a poor village family wants nothing more than to own a horse. Her family soon takes in a pregnant mare which they have signed on to care for over the winter. Financial troubles pushes the family towards the edge of ruin and neither they nor the horse is eating much. The horse becomes very ill, and the vet determines that only grass can save it. Ine walks many miles through the snow to a hot spring where grass grows year-round to save the horse's life. That spring, the horse gives birth to a cult, and it looks like Ine will finally have her horse. But when the cult is grown, the government orders it auctioned and sold to the army, as unpaid bills force the family to sell the cult. Ine takes a job in a mill to save money to buy the horse back. The day of the auction, she is outbid and cries that the horse is led away from her one last time. So that's fun. <laughs> yeah, a really optimistic film. A lot of you can see Akira Kurosawa's love for life, and it's a pretty bleak film. And it kind of shows, but what do you think about it? You watched it, I'm not going to say you watched it more than I did, but you probably understood more about it than I did. We both watched it as much as we could. Yeah. All three of our listeners, I want you to take solace and know that we will put a lot more effort into actually watching the other movies. 
because we can read the subtitles and see the picture. Two important elements for a foreign movie. <laughs> One important element for a movie in general. Yeah, we will watch the entire films and not be on our phones, and we will have <laughs> genuine opinions about the film at the end of it because we all have taken something away from it. But that doesn't mean there's nothing to take away from this film. There definitely is. Um, Akira Kurosawa loves horses, so not much of a surprise to see him attached to this movie, just bluntly titled Horse. Yep, just horse. <laughs> and discussing the evolution of Kurosawa's style, you can see already his kind of penchant for having stories that start and end full circle. The movie is bookended by scenes of horse auctioning, which mm -hmm. I think is interesting because the whole movie goes through the four seasons with this family. So starting and ending at the same place just feels very uh, finite, which fits in well with, you know, giving away this horse that we spent the whole movie hoping that Ine would be able to keep. Yeah. Um, Ine, played by uh, Hideko Takamine in one of her first roles. She got her start with Yasujiro Ozu in his movies Tokyo Chorus and the Munekata Sisters, and she's mainly known for being the lead in Mikio Naruse's movies, especially When a Woman Ascends the Stairs, Floating Clouds, and Yearning. And she also appeared in the third film in Masaki Kobayashi's magnum opus, The Human Condition. And we will see her again, except we won't. Because the only other Kurosawa movie she was in was Those Who Make Tomorrow, his lost movie that was made very similarly to this one. So her contributions with one of the greatest directors, unfortunately a little stifled. She can almost say that she was in his first film, but not officially. And, and, then, and then we can say prove it, and then they can't. Well, if you see this blur here, that's me. <laughs> this blurry shape moving around the screen. <laughs> I would love to see a fully restored version of this movie with subtitles would be very very interesting they're like yeah we're like we're making fun of it but there is a lot going on here i didn't even notice the four season thing until you mentioned it here yeah because you couldn't see it <laughs> yeah because i couldn't see it but it makes sense that like the film follows the four seasons it's a story of you know almost death in winter rebirth in spring you can tell like kurosawa wants to do a lot with his films even if he can't because <laughs> uh, he's limited by other factors i also think that it's notable for having a female lead for Kurosawa, because a, a lot of Japanese cinema, more domestic dramas of Naruse and Ozu, are very female-centric, uh, and Kurosawa will have stories with women as his leads, but he primarily has men in the leading roles. But yeah, no, I definitely noticed that was an unusual step for uh, Kurosawa to have, like, you know, this young girl be a lead of his film. Especially given the fact that a lot of his movies are going to be samurai movies, you know, just comes with the territory of what he's doing to not really have as many women stars. So it's nice to see a few of them early on. And in terms of favorite shots from what we were able to make out... Uh, yeah, we both picked one, and that's something that we will do every time. Not too much that I can elaborate on it, but I did really like this still of a landscape and the horse and a group of people all dressed in black kind of walking single file... It has a very ominous feeling as they're heading toward the farm to like really start the entire film's journey, one that we ultimately know is going to end in tragedy. So I think it's a pretty poignant and fitting image to kind of introduce that, even though it's about 20 minutes into the movie. My favorite shot is also pretty early in the film. Kind of looks like a, just a low-key black and white horror shot. It is literally, if you look at it, a hill, and there is the white sky, like blinding white frame behind it with a cloud coming over. And then on the hill are just a bunch of kids in like kind of like not capes and stuff but like these clothes that hang over them and they're like have their hands up what they're doing in this scene is uh making fun of the protagonist for falling in a hole in the snow two seconds before you see her running through the snow she falls in her brothers run up to her and start making fun of her and she gets mad and then the camera pans up to these kids on the hill also making fun of her which i guess in a way shows like 
the sense of community in Japan and in these films, but it's also like it's a playful little thing, but it it just looks this like baroque horror, which I, I thought was very cool. It, it's it is very stark. Yeah, it's very stark. There's a few shots in this film that were just like almost black on white with the nature of the lighting, <laughs> which uh, creates a cool effect. It's probably the only effect that can really translate among this like just extremely badly preserved film. Uh, amongst amongst pixels. Yeah, there were some scenes where I was even I was wondering, is it supposed to look like the uh, snow? filled roof matches the sky exactly or is that just an error with the preservation of the film <laughs> but because there are some scenes where there are people shoveling on a roof and they just look like two figures just on a blank canvas but that could be a totally accidental i'm glad we're spending so much time describing shots on a audio podcast but if you want to if you ever want to check it out especially if you could speak japanese and have a microscope it's on youtube you can just watch it in fact, if you speak Japanese, have a microscope, find the film, and have a lot of time in your hands, you could tell us what happens. Because <laughs> I would love to know, because it actually seems like there might be something here in this film, but I really could not get into it. Yeah, I would I would love for Criterion to get its hands on it and find, a, just, and restore a print of it, if it exists. Yeah, if it exists, that's a big... But, thing. you know, pre-Atomic Bomb Japan has a lot of movies that, after that, were lost, depending on where they were being stored. Also, just that was just the nature of film preservation at the time a lot of movies were lost early on a lot of naruse's works mizuguchi's works just things that we no longer have access to which is very unfortunate because they really were some of the best directors to ever grace the earth yeah but no uh especially with older films they just get lost to time and that's what happens and that's luckily not exactly what happened to this film we do have something left to see the uh, very earliest work of kurosawa quote unquote yeah, is there anything more we want to say about Uma or about this podcast? Or? Normally, uh, we're going to try and rank these movies and, you know, just try and assign a general, like, oh, do I recommend it, do I not? But I, I truthfully can't give an honest, accurate review of the movie because I didn't understand it, so that's not fair to it. So I would say if you speak Japanese and you are interested in super early Kurosawa, then if you can watch it and get the full experience, I would recommend it just as a artifact of history. But for the lay Kurosawa fan who also happens to listen to specialized Kurosawa podcasts by people claiming to be experts, uh, you can skip it. Yeah, I mean, it certainly seems on the surface like it's a, a well-made, solid, just domestic film about a young girl who wants a horse really bad. And like, you know, for that, it, it seems like there's value there. But we'll really get more into it when we actually have a full experience of this film. And hopefully we haven't scared you off so you can actually hear them. Yeah, I mean, everyone's got to start listening at the Rashomon episode and just listen to the classics anyway. <laughs> yeah, we're making we're making all, all those episodes so that if any of them get listened to, it's only like four of them. Yeah. I mean, if I found this podcast, I would only listen to Rashomon and Seven Samurai Redbeard and Ron. If it was up to me, I wouldn't listen to us at all. Well, luckily it's not up to you. <laughs> so, except for the... It's, <laughs> it's like actually seven up hours. to every single person in the world except me. Yeah. I also want to give a special shout out to two people, Ellie Conklin for creating our amazing cover art inspired by the poster for Akiru, and Joe Barbieri for composing our intro and outro music. He also composed the music for my most recent short film, and I love you both very much, passionately. Thank you, Tim, so much for inviting me onto this project, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm glad to have you, Chris. I am looking forward to expanding your mind. Yeah. Peace. Peace.